I'm an alcoholic. My name's Chuck. Hey, Chuck. Kent, you, uh, I want you, you folks to know that Kent is probably one of the best examples of Alcoholics Anonymous that I know of today. And I just have to tell him that publicly. I want to thank Walt for coming on and enduring this for about the hundredth time. And Sherry, it's uh, good to have you on from the Valley and I haven't seen you for years and at least I know you're on here. <clears throat> you know, one of the things I miss in our meetings, <clears throat> and it was before this Zoom thing took over, and your meeting is one of the strong, was, was one of the strongest speaker meetings in Orange County started back in the 70s. And you would walk into a meeting and sit down and you would be in that meeting and you would see the coats and ties and you'd see the dresses and the skirts and you'd see the people that were proud to be a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they would take that pride out of the meeting wherever they went. And you would feel a spirit in the room, a spirit that was indescribable, but if you were a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and you were wanting to stay sober and do the things like Kent did to do so, you would feel that spirit. And over the years, <clears throat> that spirit has not been coming into a lot of the rooms, most of them, because the groups are getting away from singleness of purpose, getting away from the traditions, getting away from what we're here for. And we're here to help the other alcoholic that's still suffering. And sometimes the alcoholic that's still suffering is not just the person out there. It could be somebody sitting right in the room with 20 years, 10 years, 15, whatever. And uh, we overlook that. And these Zoom things, of course, uh, it says, said it in our history 75 years ago that the, sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. And these Zoom things can be the enemy of the best because people will get so complacent and so comfortable sitting at home, not going out to a meeting and not being able to touch another alcoholic not be able to carry the message and we get on these zooms and we get lazy because we don't act like we do when we're in a room uh, somebody says well i can do what i want to in my home well you're invited into my home too and when i'm on these zooms and i see people up at the screen eating or half dressed in a bed or doing other things, flittering around the house and not paying attention. You know, I think, why don't you just turn off your video if you want to do those things and just listen? We wouldn't do that in a live meeting. So sometimes it's uh, rather stressful with these things when you uh, see some of the ones that are run very well and some that are not. So I'll just go ahead and do what I'm supposed to do tonight, share what it used to be like, what happened and why it hasn't changed a heck of a lot. Uh, I was uh, born sober 
uh, into a Southern Baptist family and my grandmother raised me until I was almost 12 and she passed away <clears throat> and I was taken in by a Jewish Orthodox family and they sent me to a Catholic military school. So until I got here, I had prayed to whom it may concern all my life, but that's not the reason I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I started drinking alcohol. And I never want to forget the very first drink that I ever took. I had already finished school. I was home on leave from the Air Force. I'd gone to a theater. <clears throat> and after the theater, I decided that I'd stop at a private club that my family belonged to. And I walked in and I went straight into the bar and I sat down and I ordered a bottle of beer. <clears throat> and the bartender that was on duty that night had known me all my life. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Charles, have you started drinking since you left home? And I said, no, John, I've never had a drink in my life, but tonight I just think I'll have a bottle of beer. And he gave me a Miller's High Life and I picked it up and I drank it as fast as I possibly could because I was afraid that somebody might walk in and catch me drinking. Now, the reason I need to remember that drink that night so vividly tonight, sitting at that bar, I had no marital problems. I wasn't even married. I had no job problems because I was doing exactly what I had wanted to do ever since I was a teenager. And I'd gone to one of the best military schools in the world to get ready for it. And I had no financial problem. And sitting there that night for no reason whatsoever, I blew almost 22 years of total sobriety. And I know I could do that same thing all the time because it's not when things are coming down on me that I have the fear of drinking again. It's when everything seems to be going okay. It's when she's okay, the kids were okay, and the job was okay. I would get that stinking thinking that just maybe that wasn't quite that bad. You know, Kent made a comment. He said, alcohol was cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I found out that's also patient. So I have to stay close to active in and a part of this fellowship on a daily basis. And I learned very early, it's not a good idea to go back to some place you had to pray yourself out of. And that's what I had to do. So I stay close to active in and a part of this fellowship on a daily basis. It's no problem for me going to meetings because in the days when I got here, going to a meeting was where I could sit down and I could feel all that pressure just peel off of me that I had accumulated during the day. I drank myself from that one drink, I drank myself up to 15, almost 15 years later, 3,000 miles away from where I had my first drink. But I locked my office door on December the 22nd 
and I was going home for Christmas and New Year's. We closed for two weeks for that period of time with my company. And the next conscious thing I could remember, I was sitting at a traffic light. I came out of a black light, blackout, and it was January the 5th. And I was shaking so bad, there was no way I could go on into the office. So I turned around and I went back to my house and I walked in and I took down a bottle of vodka at the cabinet and I sat it on the counter. And I was staring at that bottle of vodka and I was staring at another bottle next to it filled with Valium. And I had a doctor at that time that thought alcoholism was caused by Valium deficiency. I still have that doctor, but his uh, thinking's a little different. And I didn't want to get hooked on those funny little pills, so I took the drink. And thank God that first drink stayed down. And I got in my car and I drove to my office and I went upstairs and I told my staff that I hope they'd had a, a good vacation like I did. And I really couldn't remember 15 minutes from the time I locked that office door till that morning. And I went to lunch that day and I had my normal lunch. I had a couple of drinks and I ate lunch and I went back to work. A few days later, I found myself going to lunch a lot earlier, having a few more drinks, and pretty soon I'd say the heck with lunch, and I'd go back to work. And after that, I found myself really going to lunch early, having a lot of drinks, and then I would say the heck with lunch and the heck with going back to work. And it hit me just that fast. And I did that kind of drinking all the way through the month of January. February 1st came, and I walked in my office, and I was the first one there. And the phone was ringing, and I picked it up, and it was my boss on the other end calling me from Dearborn, Michigan. And he proceeded to tell me I had a drinking problem. And I had 30 days to do something about it. And if I didn't, it could be grounds for termination. And I told that man in no uncertain terms that nobody that far away could call me and tell me I had a drinking problem and threaten to fire me over it. And I hung up on him. By that time, my secretary had come in and I told her I'd be back in a few minutes. And she knew that could be a half hour, half a day. And I got in my car and I was uh, headed for a cocktail lounge not far from my office that a friend of mine at the Elks had purchased. And he told me that normally he opened at 10 in the morning, but he was going to start opening at 6 or 6.30 a.m. should I ever have a need to come by. And that's exactly where I was headed down to see Harry. And on the way down to Harry's, it suddenly occurred to me that my very best friend, alcohol, had just turned on me. And I couldn't handle it. And I got down to Harry's and I went in and I sat down and I told Harry what my boss had said. Now Harry's version of my pressures and my responsibilities and my accomplishments was so much better than my boss's version. I just sat and listened to Harry all day. I didn't feel like I had to go back to that office and put up with that crap, but I had to go back the next day. And I had to alter my routine and 
because I knew they'd be checking on me. And I first thing I had to do was the hardest. I had to cut my lunch hours from four hours down to two. But we do what we have to when the heat's on. And I did that kind of drinking all the way through the month of February. March came, nothing happened. I didn't get fired. I didn't even get any more threatening phone calls. And I thought in my sick mind that if you work for a company as big as I did, and if you held a position such as I did, they wouldn't dare fire you unless you admitted you had a, a problem. So all I had to do is just never admit I had a problem. And I loosened up into March. <clears throat> Midway into March, a friend of mine that had ran a different division down the hall <coughs> called me in on my private line and asked me if I'd step down. He'd like to talk to me for a minute. And I went down to Ray's office and I walked in and he looked at me. And he said, Chuck, I just came back from Dearborn and they're talking about you. And if you don't do something about your problem and do it quick, they're going to fire you. They don't care how fast you progress. They don't care how much you've done for the company. They don't even care how much potential you may have. They can't afford to have you around anymore. And I told him in no uncertain terms to mind his own business. And if he was looking for a person with a drinking problem, he wouldn't even have to leave his office to find one. And I walked out and I slammed his door. When I got home that night, I, I uh, told my then wife what Ray had said. And I never told that my own boss had called me. And that night I uh, went into my study and I, the next morning I knew she knew even if she wouldn't admit she knew. And I couldn't go back to the house anymore and drink like I used to. So I had to do another first in my life. I stopped at a liquor store and I knew the owner of that store, but I had no idea that he would be there that early. And I walked in and there he was behind the counter and I told him I had a friend in the hospital that asked me to bring him a little bottle of vodka, but I didn't know what brand he drank. And without even looking, he put a bottle on the counter between us and he looked at me and he said, Chuck, I think this will suit your friend fine. And to make it look good that morning, I got some ice and some cups and some orange juice and I put it all in a big brown bag and I got in my car and I drove to my office and I sat in my parking lot and I drank it. A few days later, I'm back in that liquor store again and my friend is still there. And I, this time I buy a bigger bottle of vodka and I take the cap off that bottle and I turn it right up to my mouth. And when I get my change, I get in my car and I drive down Tustin Avenue, the main street connecting where I lived to where my office was. And I was passing people that I did business with on a daily basis and never once did I worry about that because I wasn't drinking then because I liked it. I wasn't drinking it because I wanted it. And I wasn't even drinking it because I needed it. I was drinking it because I had to have it. 
to get from one point to the other. It was only 17 blocks. And I found myself that morning sitting in my parking lot, holding that bottle with everything I had in me, praying to a God I didn't even understand to just let me die. To just let me die in that car and not go back up those stairs one more day and face the humiliation I'd known the last several weeks. Sitting in that car holding that bottle of vodka, I had lost everything near and dear to me. I hadn't lost a job yet. I hadn't lost the family. I hadn't lost the house. The things I had lost were deep down inside. All of the things that allowed me to go to the schools I went to and do the things I did. And the, I had the most pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization a person like me could have because I had a body that wouldn't die and a mind that couldn't function. I had to go on up those stairs just a couple of more days. And one day I came back from lunch and no sooner sat down and my boss appeared at the door and I knew he wasn't there to promote me. He was there unannounced, uninvited, and unwanted. And he said, we're going down to Ray's office and talk. And we went down there and as he closed the door, he said, why didn't you do something about your problem? And I said, what problem? He said, your drinking problem, man, you're drunk now. I can smell it. And I knew that man had flown all the way out here to try to bluff me one more time because all I ever drank in the daytime was vodka and you know you can't smell vodka. He sat down and his voice mellowed and he said, why? Why did you make it necessary for me to come all this way to fire you? I waited through the month of February, March, and even into April. And I just can't wait any longer. And he took out some documents and he laid them on the desk between us. And he said, these are your termination papers and this is your stock in our company. But all you have to do right this moment is tell me you want help. And I have the authority to take you anywhere in this country you want to go to get it. If you don't understand the insanity of an alcoholic sitting there looking at those papers, I knew everything I'd ever worked for in my life was on the line. I knew it would only be a matter of days that I would be in financial bankruptcy. My family would leave me. And knowing all of those things and more, before I would admit I had a problem, I pulled those papers in front of me and signed away everything. Looking somewhat shocked, he said he would meet me the next morning so I could clean out my office in privacy. I must have met him because the next day I came to in my chair in my study and I was trying to decide if I should keep an appointment for that night. And what was happening to me that night, I was having what we call in Alcoholics Anonymous a moment of clarity. And that moment of clarity is in the life of every alcoholic because it's a moment or a time 
when we have to decide if we're going to live or die. God can't do it for us. Family can't do it for us. Our boss can't do it for us. We have to decide if we're going to live or die. And I think God in his wisdom knew that I needed help. And my son, who was almost 18 at the time, came out of his room. And that in itself was a miracle. And he came up to my chair and he stood there and he looked at me and he said, Dad, you've lost your job. And next to your family, it probably meant more to you than anything in this world. What are you going to lose next? And without saying another word, he turned around and left. All of a sudden, I realized that I was a nobody and I was going nowhere. I didn't know if I had hit my bottom in that night with that beautiful home and that lovely family. And up until 24 hours before, I had a job that was the envy of a lot of people. But I saw my bottom, and that was close enough for me. I called my then wife into the room and I asked her if there was anything left to drink in the house. She said, why? I said, there's a guy at the Elks that went through a hospital over in Orange and he's been drinking most of his life and he's in his 60s and he hasn't had a drink for six months and they must have a miracle and I want to go there. And she said, thank God. And she brought me a drink. I didn't know that was my last drink until tonight or I would have had two. It's ironic that uh, I had my first drink in an Elks Lodge in Savannah, Georgia, and 3,000 miles and 15, almost 15 years later, I had my last public drink in an Elks Lodge in Santa Ana. Within an hour, she, my son had, she and my son had me at that hospital, but my son took me in a room called Detox. And he got me undressed. And in that room that night, I took that first step as complete and as honest and as thorough as any human being could ever take it. And until you do that, the rest of the steps don't have any meaning whatsoever. I said, thank God it's all over. Thank God I don't have to get up in the morning and go back out there and lie and cheat and do all the things I've had to do over the years. And I laid down and passed out. And I came to about a week and a half later strapped in that bed from my feet to my head. And the first thing I saw when I looked out the door was a rabbit about five foot two hopping down the hall. And I let out a god-awful scream and Annie, the nurse, came running in and she, I told her what just went by my door and she started laughing. She said, but Chuck, it's Easter Sunday. I don't know about you, but that scared the bejesus out of me because all I remembered laying there was locking my office to go home for Christmas. A lot of things happened to me in that hospital. There was an old counselor named John Mack and he told me I had to call my boss and tell him where I was. And I said, John, it won't do any good. He said, in that case, dummy, it won't do any harm. And I'd never been called dummy in my life. 
And I called my boss and I told him where I was and he said, I know. We got a call because of the insurance. He said, I want you to know that I tried to do something for you, but nothing could be done. But because you called, I'll try again. And three days later, he called me and he said, Chuck, I went all the way to the president of our company and we called and talked to your doctor, Max Schneider, and he explained to us this thing called alcoholism and he convinced us that you've taken the first step by checking into that hospital. And for that reason, we've torn up your termination papers and we put you on medical leave and your office and your job will be waiting for you whenever you feel like you're capable of coming back. The other thing that man did for me, he knew I couldn't leave that hospital without a sponsor. If you don't know what a sponsor is, they're the ones <clears throat> that come in after the war is over and bayonet the wounded. He could have asked a hundred men to come take me to my first meeting, but he only asked one. And when I went up to that nurse's station, he took one look at me and he said, welcome Chuck. I've been saving a seat for you for eight and a half years. Frank O apostrophe R was not only one of my oldest drinking friends, he was also my family attorney. Never once did he try to force me into these rooms. He took me to my first meeting, the Wednesday night Laguna meeting and he walked me on right up to an old man with white hair named Chuck C. And he introduced me. And Chuck put his arms around me and he hugged me and he said, welcome home, son. And he sat me down. And that night he said to me, he said, there's only two things you need to know tonight. This is the day we don't drink. We don't care about tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever. This is the day we don't drink. And the second thing you need to remember is don't get away from your people. Stay close. After that meeting that night, Frank took me to an all-night coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, he shared his whole story. That night, he convinced me that this program could work for me too one day at a time if I wanted it. That it wasn't for the people that needed it, it's only for the people that wanted. And if I decided I wanted this program, I should get in the program and not on it as soon as I got out of that hospital. And if you don't know the difference of being in something or on something, just visualize yourself on a submarine when that sucker goes under you'd know the difference real quick. That night he saved my life and he didn't charge me one dime. Bob saved Frank's life eight and a half years before and didn't charge him one dime. That's why I go anywhere or do anything I need to do for this fellowship for free and for fun. The following Wednesday, Monday night, I walked into my first meeting, a men's stag in Tustin on Red Hill Boulevard at the Red Hill Lutheran Church. 
Now I went into a little kindergarten classroom and there's about 60 or 70 guys. And we sat on kindergarten seats. And for an hour and a half, I heard my story told over and over. And when that meeting was over, a guy I used to drink with <coughs> came up to me and he said, welcome, Chuck. You never have to take another drink as long as you live if you don't want to. I walked into that meeting with a belief that this thing might work for me. And a person in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with a belief has more force than 99 with only an interest. And that night I went out into that dark parking lot and I sat in my car and I cried as hard as I had ever cried in my life because everything I'd ever looked for in a bottle of whiskey I just found in a cup of coffee in a men's meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of things along the way happened, but I think one of the most beneficial things or the most important things that happened to me in my early sobriety. You know, we ha everybody can read the book. Everybody can get the program out of the book. Everybody can read the traditions and the steps, but the fellowship is something you have to experience. And I was sober a few months and my sponsor had spoken somewheres and and we went to a coffee shop after he spoke in Tustin and after we ordered, he looked at me and he had a little serious look on his face and he said, Chuck, I want to share something with you that was shared with me when I first got here. He said, you and I are alcoholic. And in and of ourselves, we can't stay sober. We suffer from an allergy of the body, coupled with an obsession of the mind and a spiritual void. I am so grateful he said that to me that night because alcoholism had just been labeled a disease about that time. And I think today everybody refers to it as a disease and they forget what it really is. It's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind and a visual and a spiritual void. And he said to me, he said, you have not had a drink for a while. You no longer have an allergy of the body at this moment. Therefore, and he loved to use the word therefore because being a lawyer, he can charge you. He said, therefore, the next drink you take will be right up here. You will pour and swallow the next drink. And if you're not close to active in and a part of this fellowship, it may only be a week or a month or whatever, and you'll take that drink and you'll go back out. And most people don't make it back. Kent mentioned those people that went out and drank again. A friend of mine called me about a man in San Francisco many, many years ago with 42 years that went back out. And I asked him what he said. 
And I said, do you know him? He said, yes. And I talked to him. I said, what did he tell you? He said, I had too many years and not enough days in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's very difficult to keep this thing if you don't give it away. It's very difficult to have sobriety, the kind that we need not to take a drink if we don't give it away. So I have to remember that. I have to stay close to active in and a part of this fellowship. And Frank telling me that that night, he followed it up with the reason that most people go back out and drink again is they forget that third key, that spiritual void. Because that void for years had been filled with alcohol. And we take away the alcohol and the spiritual void is there. And in our fellowship, our fellowship is based on nothing but spirituality. People said, well, that's got to be religion. I said, no, it's not religion. When I was speaking one time in Bakersfield several years ago, there was a Baptist minister that gave me the answer. He was speaking... Sunday morning, and I'd spoken Saturday night, and I liked him. I got to know him. He said, religion is man's effort to prove to God how good they are. And spirituality is the humbleness to allow God to show you how good he is. And this whole program is based on one drunk talking to another drunk. Unfortunately, most of that's by the phone these days. But that's the way it used to be. That's the way it is. And that's the foundation of the way it will always be. I can share with you in a moment how I walked through my first door and I've not yet found it necessary to go back out. There's been nothing in my life that has been a point that going back out to where I had to pray myself out of is even a uh, possibility for today. My favorite story in Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't, isn't in the book. It's in another book by Chuck C. And the book is not really a book. It's tapes that have been put into book form. Chuck went to his first meeting in February of January, 1946. And there was a veterans hall up in Beverly Hills and he walked in and the people looked so good, they, he thought that he was there on the wrong night. And he turned to leave and a little man ran up to him and he said, Mr. Mr. Were you looking for something? And Chuck, with that little bit of arrogance that we all get here with, looked at him and he said, well, if it interests you, sir, I was looking for sobriety. And the little guy lit up like a Christmas tree and he said, take your coat and hat off. You're in the right place. When I walked in my first room, I wasn't looking for her. I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't looking for more money or a bigger house. All I was looking for was for somebody to show me how I could stay here and not drink one day at a time. I didn't know if this could work for me. I wasn't sure it could work for me. 
But when I walked in that first meeting and I saw the faces in that room that night, all cleaned up and happy and glad to be there, I wanted what just about every one of them had. The only reason I'm sitting here alive tonight is because a man took the time to come and take me to my first meeting. He didn't tell me he'd meet me there. He came and he took me to my first meeting. The only reason I'm here tonight is because a man took the time to sit in an all night coffee shop and tell me his whole story. But the real reason I'm here tonight alive is because that old man took the time one night to sit me in his lap and rock me to sleep when I needed a drink more than I needed anything in the world. And I'm sure as long as I keep taking the time to come back and try to give back to you just a little bit of what you have so abundantly given to me, my life will always be heaped up, pressed down, and running over. God bless you and keep coming back. Thank you.